0: in the digital world, we don't own our data. And so we're actually renting. And so we lose it because we don't, we never really owned it. And so what we're doing is we're building these virtual worlds where you can engage and use them. Uh, Blockchain games is a container for these non-fungible token assets, because we think that this is the first step for players and users to understand what is digital property right, in fact, right? Because, you know, if you don't understand what digital property rights are, then you don't know why you need to protect it.
1: Hello and welcome to The Financial Fox Investing and Innovation Ideas with a Twist. I'm your host, Steffi B, and in this episode, to discuss the rise of the metaverses and the future of digital ownership, I will be joined by Yat Siu, chairman and co-founder of Animoca Brands, a global leader in branded blockchain gaming. This is going to be a very cool interview, so stay tuned, and I'm sure that you are going to find something really interesting to think about.
0: This decentralized ownership actually provides a way in which trust scales basically endlessly because it's in a data record that cannot be altered.
1: But before we go into the episode, I want to talk about my new crypto web domain name, financialfox.crypto, which I got it from Unstoppable Domains that is creating a new generation of web domains, which are actually domain names on a blockchain that you buy them once, they are all forever, and you don't have to worry about renewable fees anymore. And also they are decentralized, so no one can take the that- Take them down or hack your data. And because they are effectively NFTs, you can trade them and make money once the decentralized web will be taken over the internet because it is happening. And the cool things that I really like is that they make crypto payments so easy. So you can add your crypto wallet address to your crypto domain address and forget about it. So when you need to get paid, just give your web domain address and that's it. And then uh, voila, the money comes uh, right in the wallet. So you can go to Unstoppable Domains using the link in the description, which will also have to support our channel. And if you want to do a bit more to help us because you like the work we are doing, the content that we are putting out, then you can make a donation in Ethereum, Bitcoin or USDC to crypto, and that will be super appreciated. But let's
0: get into the episode.
1: Hi, Yata, how are you?
0: Very good. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's great to chat about the metaverse, which is one of my favorite topic and also how digital ownership is changing. So do we maybe want to start with the evolution of the internet coming to Web3 and then you can expand a bit more about this concept of digital ownership and how it's changing basically what was the term ownership?
0: Absolutely. Well, so first of all, you know, when we talk about the metaverse, really, we're talking about something that is, in some extent, virtual in existence, which in the past was not considered something that was maybe important because virtual was, in a way, like digital life, an extension to our physical life. So we all thought of it as something as a an extra, not as something that was maybe primary importance. And after all, when you think about things like ownership itself, the context of ownership is actually in a in a meta kind of way as well because even though you think you can hold and touch it after all even when you buy a house in a country if the government of the country disappears actually the ownership of your house disappears as well right so so just because you can physically stay in it uh, doesn't actually really mean you own it Per se, right? And I think even that is in itself a kind of virtual concept. So there are some similarities, but we've taken these things for granted, but talking about the evolution of the internet, right? I think one of the big things around what the internet enabled us to do was to really scale, you know, information access and in a way democratize access to information. And that was really, really powerful because then you and I can connect this way. You know, information was no longer exclusive and we had equal rights in terms of access to information. But the problem, of course, was that we were not able to actually provide ourselves with the, the value of these, these, um, this particular content that was being delivered because at that point, everyone was producing endless amounts of content. I couldn't verify what was real, what was not anymore as the sort of the whole internet uh, grew And we were unable to basically manage our trust factors. So I I no longer understood, uh, you know, what was real, what was not real anymore. And so the internet, even though required a trust framework, uh, actually started to break down because we were unable to verify actually whether what I received was true or not. And especially recently with things like fake news and so on, we no longer know what is real and what is not. And so the whole thing about blockchain, which makes this so interesting is, now we can verify something in a permanent manner, not actually organized by a single entity or a single control or a government or a platform, but decentralized. And this decentralized ownership actually provides a way in which trust and um, in which trust scales basically endlessly because it's in a data record that cannot be altered. Like when i send you a bitcoin i know it's the bitcoin it's the original bitcoin and nobody can forge that now with you know non-fungible tokens i can send you a property right like a, a house like a virtual house or a virtual car or something in the digital world and you know for sure that that is something that you have received and we can take that further in terms of context but really the, i think the, the scale of where, where this is, is i think blockchain you know the concept that we talk about web 3.0 is, is, uh, is the next evolution of the internet.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, uh, the, I mean, what you, you describe, it just uh, is so powerful and it comes to my mind that, um, in one of the previous interviews that I've done, we stress on freedom, which is uh, something very important in Web3 that is finally coming back for users. There is freedom to, of choice and the same time there is trust. And it's something when you mention about, right, internet is great, but when you are sharing this data and the data they are on by yourself, they become, it becomes really dangerous as well because uh, you don't know what you can trust basically. So there is a really big, uh, big elements they are putting into discussion with the evolution of the internet.
0: And I think one thing, what's worth mentioning is that sort of uh, maybe I didn't touch on this earlier uh, probably should have is that because we thought of our digital life our virtual life as an add-on we gave up our digital rights and so by that I mean we don't have ownership in anything digital today if you think about it and you know like for instance the data that you're spending in sort that you're using on Facebook is it your data? Is it it Facebook's data, right? Exactly, it's it's owned by others, right? And, And it's owned by the platform. And so you're generating that data for the benefit of Facebook, but you actually don't get anything out of it. And I think the problem is though, that we as individuals are unable to process that data. You know, what is the most important thing in the future or actually in the present? It's actually data, right? There's lots of articles that talk about the value and the importance of data. But if I give you a piece of data you don't know what to do with it, right? You just look at it and say, well, that's data. I can't, I, can't, I can't harvest it. So you need a big infrastructure, a database, a system like Facebook or Amazon or Tencent or whatever to create the knowledge and the network effect of that data.
1: Yeah, I think, so I, I, think I want to stop you here because you just said what we need right now, even if you give me an NFT... Right. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's great. But what I'm going to do with that? So what that's we fine. need is that infrastructure, and is what you are you are working on with Animoka if I'm right. So I would like at this stage maybe if you can kind of uh, explain me a little bit what you are doing with Animoka so we can frame it because I think we just touched the point where is a very big point is. W- we need this infrastructure to be in place in order to migrate or to migrate or to effectively see this new digital world become more tangible and, uh, and becoming more real.
0: Yeah, no, great. So, I mean, we have multiple sort of, um, so those Animoca brands. We have done over 75 investments now in the non-fungible token space since 2018. We have also built our own metaverses or acquired companies in that space. So, you know, the most famous probably one in our stable is the Sandbox. Uh, And I think you, you have met Seb as well, which is great. Uh, But separately, you know, we have uh, Tower, we have with Enway, you've got the Olympics, with Gaming, we've got hyper-casual games with Quid. So we've got all of these different metaverses and uh, virtual worlds that we're building up. And in those ones, we are providing with these non-fungible tokens, utility. Uh, So it's not just having an asset for collecting, which is great, but you can also use them inside a game, just kind of like as if you're buying a sort of physical shoe and you use it for running. You can use a virtual item inside a game, and that actually is a non-fungible token, and it really is yours. And it really is something that you uh, you can utilize and has value. But of course, the difference here is that much like you have in the physical world, you can put your own attributes inside these assets. So I can actually use these assets uh, and my own memory imprint is attached to it. So these emotions and feelings I have towards my virtual assets are stored essentially in in, in, in these non-fungible tokens so that I can then transfer on. You know, like in the physical world, um, you know if I, if I have a wedding ring, for instance, the wedding ring has in it sort of memories attached that they may not be particularly valuable. But, uh, you know, in terms of the material it's made of, but the wedding ring itself is very, very special to you and your partner and maybe your family, right? And that's something that wasn't possible in the digital world before, because in the digital world, we don't own our data. And so we're actually renting. And so we lose it because we don't, we never really owned it. And so what we're doing is we're building these virtual worlds where you can engage and use them. Uh, And we do it through blockchain games. Uh, Blockchain games is the container for these non-fungible token assets, because we think that this is the first step for players and users to understand what is digital property right in fact right because you know if you don't understand what digital property rights are then you don't know why you need to protect it
1: Okay, so basically what you are saying, because you mentioned gaming, and gaming is really the beginning of the digital world, but what what is basically happening is a gamification of life. I mean, this term has been used um, quite quite a few times to explain how pervasive gaming has become and it has just taken over some other aspect of our life and is getting more complex. Can we maybe explain a little bit more about the digital world, and why gaming?
0: So first, I think gaming is perhaps one of the best simulations of life in different ways, because in fact, life is kind of like a game as well, right? If you think of it in that context, you know, even when you go to school, you have certain kind of rules, right? You have certain kind of definitions. You have certain kind of social norms and structures that you have to abide to. In fact, it is a kind of game, right? Where you follow a rule set, whether it's a social norm, a governed norm, whatever. That is what games are, right? And you can exist to choose to live in the kind of game you like. And that game is really from our perspective, the existing games, like a metaverse light, like metaverse 0.5. Not full metaverse, but partial metaverse. Because in these virtual worlds, we are already accustomed to buying virtual assets we already meet our friends online. We make our friends on, uh, we, we, we maybe even find our partners online, which is happening more and more, right? So actually everything's happening in a, in a virtual context already. And that's, uh, that's already happening in games in a very natural form, right? You know, when you, when, you, when you use a social network like Facebook or Instagram, you're not thinking that you're in a virtual world, even though you are right you're not thinking of it because you treat it more as an information platform or as a delivery platform but when you're inside a game you actually are immersed right you have to pay attention just like you have to pay attention in the physical world you have to be in the present and that's something that is uh, is is you know something we do every day and the games simply reinforce that so this also is a generational thing as well you know when we grew up we never thought of the digital life as something sort of critical, but for our children, the digital life is absolutely critical. Ask our children, what do you want for Christmas? Chances are they want something virtual. They don't want something physical. And so for them, the virtual world is already the primary reality, I would argue, right? And I think in that context, that means it's even more important that in that primary reality, we must own the aspects of our digital life and therefore we must have digital property. And I wanna address one important point here, which is, you know, what happens to us as people, as human beings, if we lose our digital access? If Twitter says, I don't like you, if Facebook says, I don't like you, and they remove you from the platform, as they have done many times, will you as an individual be able to make friends the same way? Actually, can you make business the same way? Can you be as successful if you are not actually online? And the reality for most of us is that if we lose our online access, we actually become uh, citizens with less rights, with less ability, with less capacity. And the issue, and this is really important, I think, is that in the physical world, we have a charter of human rights. We have a government, we have a structure that informs us to protect us of these things so that people can't just take away what's important to us, right? We, we have this. And if we don't like them, at least we have the ability to vote them off or to do something. But in the digital world, we don't have that. If Facebook doesn't like you, it's a terms of service. You're gone. So we are currently living in a digital kingdom and we are all digital serfs. It's digital feudalism that we have right now. And so all the games that we're playing right now is a digital feudalism. It's like, you know, medieval Europe, six, 700 years ago, yeah. right? But except it is in a digital context.
1: Yeah, I think that that is quite, it's quite interesting what you said. And there are a few things that I wanna ask. So let's start with um, the terms of avatar, which is a term that was coined actually when I was born in 1985 to describe a player character in a video game and uh, based on what you were being discussing before, it looks like the avatar has become a human extension. Would you say that is correct?
0: Absolutely, but you know what? Let's not talk about avatars. Let's talk about clothing and fashion in the real world. What is that? It's an extension of you. It's an extension of your identity. When you choose a piece of clothing, you're saying something about who you are or what you want to be. Avatar is the same, no difference.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's let's go back to this, uh, to this example. So I've got a beautiful virtual handbag. Uh, when, when we will see the brand, uh, you know, start to deliver more NFTs and, and digital assets, and I want uh, to bring it with me in any games or in, in any metaverses that I go. Then it comes the problem of interoperability. Am I gonna be able to bring my handbag everywhere and how that is going to be possible. So what I wanted to ask you, comment a bit about interoperability of these metaverses, and perhaps should we get to a stage or are we getting to a stage of a universal multiverse, which, which are basically interoper, interoperability across different metaverses? Quite a bit. So-
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, we're really big on interoperability. We think interoperability on our digital assets is key, because it is effectively the, the pathway to the equivalent of free trade, right? And the value of the assets, the importance of the assets, the utility of the assets simply expands if you have interoperability. But the difference, of course, is that interoperability is one that is defined by you as the creator of another game or another metaverse or another universe, whatever you want to call it. It's permissionless. It means that we as a creator of assets don't inform you how to use the asset. It is you where the asset exists, the creator of the place where it exists. You decide how it's imported. So you can add your own experiences on top of these NFTs. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, when we think physically, we think, oh, I buy a car. So I should be able to use the car and drive it in Hong Kong or drive it in Italy or drive it in Germany, because the function of the car is just simply to drive, right? That's, that's, that's sort of the idea. It has wheels and, you know, steering wheel and so on. But in the virtual world, actually, the integration can be much more fantastic. It can be a car in my game, but it can be a horse in another one, or it can be a spaceship in another game. Right. So, so it can be anything you want it to be, not based on what the creator decided, but based on what the creator of that particular metaverse wants that asset to be.
1: All right. right. So, so this evolution of, uh, this kind of evolution of NFT adaptability of NFT type, poly type can I say that? Is, how, how this determine?
0: Well, okay, so when you talk about this interoperability and interchangeability, the only limit is human creativity, right? Uh, So we, we can't think of it in terms of the structure, in terms of limiting it. The thing is though, that when you design these digital assets, you have to provide it with a kind of metadata and a kind of record that makes sense for the community that you are attaching, right? And I think the physical example of this would be, for instance, take example like shoes right when you make a decision to buy a puma or adidas or nike or asics shoe right what is the decision making as to why you buy that shoe right is it is it because you it, it makes you run faster i mean maybe you think that but i think we all know that the speed difference between a Nike shoe and a Adidas shoe, advertising aside, is probably non-existent, right? So you're not buying a shoe because you can run faster, but you're buying a shoe because maybe one shoe was was promoted by LeBron James, or you're buying another kind of shoe because all your friends are wearing it, right? So there's a social context and there is a community context. That is the metadata. And that data then ends up getting utilized Inside one universe or another metaverse, inside you know, a game or an exchange or a platform. And the creator of that metaverse gets to decide how that metadata is interpreted and used. Okay. Now, so, so 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 it flips it a little bit upside down, but it really adds sort of user-generated creativity on top of assets. And today we have a version of this, like you know, if I buy a car and I wanna paint it or wanna accessorize it, or if I have a house and I wanna do interior decoration, then I have other services and other people that decorate the house or or change it a certain way, right? You know, it's your asset and other people can create new experiences inside, you know, my house for which I pay money for. That is essentially non-fungible tokens. You know, I have an asset as a non-fungible token, and I choose to move my non-fungible token to the sandbox because I can experience it in a very cool way in the sandbox. Or I can put it into something like Gamey and experience it differently in Gamey because they made a totally new way to experience it using the same kind of metadata structure. So, So that to me is how I think this is happening, and it's already beginning.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, that, is that possible across all the metaverses today?
0: Yeah. it's. I mean, it's, so because, you know, with blockchain, the asset is already open. So I think the way to think of it is a similar parallel is a little bit like open source, right? Okay. You know, you can download any open source code, and you can modify it as you like, and it could maybe take a different shape or form And of course, you have to share it back, but the different shape or form is how this code exists in a unique way, not intended in its original design, is the way non-fungible tokens, we think, will also collaborate, because it's open. You know, because it's on, for instance, an ERC-721 or 1155, it's basically an Ethereum standard, and if you have the asset, you can import it in your game and support it. You do not need the permission of the creator of the asset to 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 do it right uh so 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 in that sense the the interoperability the ability i think for interoperability is already inherent whether you choose to support it is a different matter right you know maybe i don't want you know these swords maybe i don't want this car so i don't support it i don't bring it in but the point is if you want to you can choose to and I think the most successful games in the future are going to be the ones that are the most open because in this case we as owners of these assets we really want to experience our assets in different ways and so I think the most successful metaverses are the ones who are going to find creative ways to experience your assets because it brings with it the benefit of those users and their network effect into the metaverse or their particular metaverse.
1: Okay so let's now talk a bit about the the uh, society the economy the life that we are building in a metaverse because this is what's happening if i go in like with the with my avatar or with my 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 digital version and with my digital assets and that happen with other people what you create is a sort of like society and a sort of like economy so my question will be how you can create an efficient economy or how an economy in the metaverse would would, would can be and second if we are creating a society we need ethics and rules because I can't bring in a gun from Maybe that is where the metaverse can actually limit yourself to bringing a gun, but and the asset could be something else. But let's say That's- you can't go with a gun and just start to shoot people because or are not respect people. So how we build these dynamics, they are existing in the real society. And, and, and I think if the metaverse is going to become more and more pervasive, that should exist even in a digital world, because otherwise it's going to be like, you know, like... Uh,
0: Madness is just going to be chaos. Yes. So um, I think the important thing here is, again, that the metaverse where players or users will exist in are going to be based on rules that are defined either by the creators of the metaverse or by the community itself. Right. So there are structures like a DAO structure that can essentially ensure that maybe only through the community control does a game go or metaverse go in one direction or another. Right. so what you're seeing is experimentation of different kind of governance models to create the kind of world that you want to live in now first of all to your earlier question around sort of you know these economies and these societies my point is that these are not just quasi societies these are actual real societies right uh, because you know it's a it's a it's a primary income for a lot it's starting to become a primary income people are making money from it people are living there people are connecting with people people are more social there you know you could say in in many ways, you know, existing in the metaverse might be a primary reality more and more for more and more people, right? And so the economic framework then is the same about goods and services, value creation or value destruction, right? And so then you go into the question of, well, how do you govern this? How do you manage this, right? Is it governed by a single entity like a king or is it governed by a Tao, like a democracy, right? And then you get to choose to live in the places that you want to. And actually in the physical world, that's already happening, right? I mean, if you look at Europe, like the EU, you can travel more freely, COVID aside, and you can choose, maybe I like to live in Germany because I like the style in Germany, or maybe I like to live in Italy, or maybe I like to live in France. And you have a choice to live in these places which have slightly different ways or cultures to experience. You know, if I don't like, for instance, the fact that uh, there is, you know, lots of guns, maybe in America, then I can move somewhere else if I want to. The issue for humans in the past though, is that physical relocation was very difficult because you had to travel, there's lots of costs, there's all these things. But in the virtual world, I can just sort of instantly move and because there's non-fungible tokens in the future, I can not just move, I can take all of my assets with me. So we think that mechanism ensures that whatever metaverse or world you're creating for your audience, that you are forced to listen to your audience because the control comes from the fact that i have property rights imagine for instance if you were i don't know if you were living in like if you were living in hong kong right and we didn't like what was going on in hong kong and we wanted to leave the deterrent of leaving is that all oh, my assets are here i can't move my house somewhere i can't transfer my car right away i can only move the money and that's it right i have to liquidate it takes time but if i could just take everything to another metaverse that says hey you're welcome here and I can make it better or whatever, I can try that. Then, you know, the sort of virtual community is forced to find a way to make sure you don't leave. Otherwise, with you leaving, you take your data with you, which means you take what's valuable with you. So in that context, it requires all of these metaverses to start to listen to the users or their society, as it were, and therefore become more accountable to it. So that is where we think, the ideal metaverse setup will be. Because if I don't like it, I can move. Does it mean that there might be societies that might be the kind of society you and I don't want to live in? Maybe. Because it is also about diversity and choice. And we may not agree with, you know, one society, which maybe we don't like because of their style. But in this kind of environment, they have the freedom to do that because they can build their community around that. And, you know, we can agree to disagree or whichever around what is right or what is wrong. But in an environment like like with blockchain and NFTs, it is uncensorable. It allows people to create the type of environments they like to see. And so we generally believe that most people would want to live in an environment that is nice and that is generally positive for the most part. And therefore, we will gravitate towards those type of environments more.
1: And it's going to be more fair as well, because, you know, yes, we are living uh, you know, most countries, they are a democracy, but y- you don't have the kind of transparency that will be uh, happening with the DAO, for instance, and, you know, empowered by technology is a completely different uh, system, you know, at the moment uh, is blockchain is not supporting our society. So you believe only what they tell you. That's, uh, you know, again, another issue. So, With more freedom comes more responsibility. Are people ready for that?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, if you think about it, right? Um, Five, 600 years ago, however long it was, when, you know, property rights and essentially the beginning of the end of feudalism started to come about, you know, one could also argue, were people actually ready for that? And, And many people would argue that you know, oh, you need to have command and control. You need to have a top level that sort of tells other people because at the time, education was generally poor, you know, like uh, less people knew how to read, you know, knowledge was, you know, knowledge was the aspect that was controlled. You know, I have information, you don't. So actually I kind of control the information and therefore I have access or I, I know how to write and you don't know how to write. So I know something you don't know, So right? So So information arbitrage, you know, which is another kind of data, was really the big weapon of their time. And, and, uh, and so uh, that means if I didn't know how to read or write, then if someone told me about property rights, I didn't know how to do it. I have no knowledge about what to do there, because even if you told me about property rights, how do I buy it? How do I do it, right? And so I think today we are at a similar stage that is virtual. Right? Meaning that we have a similar lack of understanding, a similar kind of lack of appreciation, but we are getting there because we have more knowledge than we than sort of you know than we had in the past, and more awareness. And therefore, I think that the development and the evolution of that will grow faster. So, are we ready for that? Well, I, of course, not everyone is ready for that because if they were, we'd already be in the metaverse, right? Yeah. But I think the progression of this, to me, is going to happen very, very fast. Because if you tell a gamer or if you tell someone who's very active online that you ought to own your digital property, he might go, I don't understand this. But when he understands the consequences of that, he says, actually, maybe this is a good thing. And we see this today already. And that is why the blockchain and crypto movement is gaining steam as well. You know, Not just because people think they can make money. That's obviously one aspect. But the other bigger aspect is that they think of this as a better future you know, as a better governance, as a way in which I have rights that belong to me.
1: Better future. What about sustainability and environmental concerns? How they are going to be tackling the metaverse?
0: Well, first, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about that and it's good to have this conversation because obviously blockchain today, particularly um, sort of the sort of uh, mining approach is not very energy efficient. We know that. But there are a few arguments around from a comparative standpoint. First of all, much is going towards proof of stake, for instance, or proof of authority or other kinds of mechanisms that are more energy efficient. To me, it's kind of like a technological evolution. You know, if you measured the energy output of a computer 30 years ago and you said, oh my goodness, if we had the same relative energy output per compute power in the future, the world will end. But you know what? The world did not end. And the reason it didn't do so is because we became more power efficient. It's like cars as well, right? If we thought that the output of our exhaust of the car will be the same from 50 years ago with the same horsepower or the same consumption output, then yes, the whole world should be just dying in terms of carbon output and everything. But no, right? And because technology improves and scales in its improvement and will get better. So... You know, that doesn't mean that we should just say, no worries. Of course, we have to worry. Of course, we have to be efficient. But there's one other thing as well, which is, and there, I think there is a natural, um, there's a natural human incentive to be more efficient, and that is cost. right? One of the issues of energy output is cost. right? And so I have a desire as an individual or as a business to optimize my cost, and so how do I optimize my cost? Spend less. How do I spend less? Be more green, right? So in that context, I think we are naturally incentivized towards moving towards higher efficiency. Where fuel economies, traditional fuel economies, have obviously been sort of more perverted is that they had existing groups that were able to produce fuel very cheaply. And therefore, their incentive, economic incentive, was not to be green because it wasn't More efficient for them from a cost standpoint. But when it comes to consensus mechanisms like mining versus staking, it is very clear that it is much more cost efficient to not do uh, mining, but to go to staking or another approach, which is clear because the cost here's the other thing the cost doesn't go towards, um, you know, uh, like an institution that might absorb it. Like in the US, for instance, one of the other issues is that fuel is subsidized. Right? I grew up in Europe and fuel had a certain cost. And then in America, everything's so much cheaper. It's like, why, why is it so much cheaper? I didn't know it was that cheap. And it's cheaper because it was subsidized. So as a result, an entire society never thought that you had to become energy efficient because cost of fuel was cheap, right? And here, you, know, you on Ethereum for instance, you don't wanna be spending $10 per transaction or $20 per transaction, right? You have a natural incentive towards moving towards something that will cost less. So I think over time, it will it's already solving itself because the natural economic incentives are aligned.
1: Okay, so evolution of technology, big point. What about AI? What is bringing to the metaverses?
0: Well, okay, so I think it's not just the metaverse, right? AI is this, you know, is kind of everywhere, right? And I think the point about AI is that, you know, the idea that the computer and the machine correctly today is already able to do many things better than the human, at least in terms of logistical tasks or automated tasks. And in the future, even more tasks that we thought only humans can do, AI will be able to do. And that basically means two things. The first one is that labor as a classic labor, like physical labor, is going to reduce, as it has already in the past, in terms of economic value and output. Right? That's so and the second thing is that when it comes to sort of abundance of creation of things like resources, like food or natural resources will also become more and more cheaper because AI and machines can do it faster, it can do it better. So you have a complete sort of shift and change in terms of, sort of the global global economic landscape so then you go into the metaverse right where you know physical strength doesn't matter right Um, but what actually matters in this context we think in the most important context is sort of human feeling emotion and creativity because that is the one thing that a machine is not able to do and perhaps cannot do in the same way and you could argue i would say that we are in a pivotal time with the metaverse because really for the first time possibly at a mass scale we are able to reward creative output fairly creative output was not considered something very valuable 100 years ago because after all you know it doesn't it doesn't feed you you know it, it, you can't work in a factory if you're very creative right you, you, you can't do the kind of tasks that were important 100 years ago to do that because 100 years ago things like food and resources were scarce but with machines and and AI, it's no longer scarce. And therefore we now should be able to do what we as humans can do better and perhaps should be doing, which is to use our brain for these creative activities that we're doing. And I think this is to me, the big change. Of course, it requires a change in the way we look at labor, focusing on creative labor. But I think this is kind of, if you want to call it a renaissance or a new, new industrial revolution, we call it a new creative revolution that will emerge from the fact uh, that's happening there, and AI to me is a facilitator of that future because it allows us to no longer have to worry. And just look at you know our generation versus our parents' generation. I grew up my parents' generation in a time where we actually had to think about can we afford this food, right? <laughs> you know, and are we able, you know, like are we able to manage this, right? Like there was a it was a different battle, and while today we have different struggles. Very few of us, at least in the Western world, would worry about food on the table, right? No, we
1: just think, right? should I be vegan or carry on eating meat or stuff like That's that? That's right,
0: exactly, right? And so we have the ability to now think in a creative way of other things and optimize other aspects of our life because we have the luxury of doing it because we no longer just need to worry about just food. We can now choose the kind of food we want that is better for us or whatever, because also the cost of that food is not expensive, relatively speaking, to what it was for you know, our ancestors, right? So I think, I think this, is the, this is the part where that evolution is happening. And I think AI is just simply the necessary uh, expedient towards that.
1: Okay, so do you think that the current technology and hardware is, is a limit, is a barrier at the moment for the metaverse? because you kind of need maybe a more powerful computer, you know, do you think that kind of hardware, the hardware can actually keep up with the fast speed that the metaverse is evolving? How do you see that?
0: So first of all, I think that, you know, I think what we have in sort of the stage of the metaverse run is actually quite good already. Uh, and I think it's important, you know, when you look at things like Moore's law to understand that compute power is just going to double anyway, right? Over a 18 month period, you should expect computing power to double and double. And we see this today, right? If you look at our graphic cards power, our computing power just from one year ago, it's already significantly faster than it was before. So to me, it's just, it's not a, it's, you know, the the compute power will always generally catch up to where we need it to be. That's the first point. And you know, and then we're not that far away from basically having quantum breakthroughs and so on from 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 where things are going, right? Um, so, so I think I'm not so concerned about that. The second thing is that we've already proven to ourselves that we already accept metaverses by playing games. How many hours are we spending, or many of us spending, playing in these virtual worlds? And the other thing is that you know, I think. Some, some, sometimes we have binary expectations oh you're not in the metaverse unless you have a vr goggle and unless you're yeah. completely immersed and your whole body feels and whatever but you know what our experiences are emotional you know when you see a person play a game on the keyboard and the screen and he has a great victory or he has a chat actually that feeling is is real it's yeah. not fake right
1: no, and, it's like and watching a movie, you still yes. feel, I mean, maybe a movie, maybe a cinema could be like the, uh, the really beginning of the, co- co- the, you know, the really beginning of the metaverse in a way. It's not a game because you are not active, but you're still having those emotions.
0: I would argue, if you look at it that way, that perhaps the first mass metaverse is probably the beginning of the Gutenberg press, or you yeah. have the ability to read books. Because what is, after all, the True. book? It's imagination. Yeah. It plays in your mind. And this is a thing that we we as humans can do. We can imagine and be creative and invent. You know, I read the book, you read the book. We both read some of the other things. Why right? yeah. We interpret it differently. And we have different emotions and feelings coming from that. We already had a meta experience that is not the same, that is individual to us and existed entirely in our own virtual plane. You know, not on a computer, but in our reconstruction of the mind. And I think this is the part where, you know, computers just enable that to connect. And the other thing is, with the blockchain technology, now I can create these creative moments in thinking, I can embody that data, and now I can share that data, right? And, and yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it is very interesting because I think what people, when you know the normal people, the people they are not gamers or players. They they think about metaverses. Oh, what's there? And they think in silos, right? Where they should think more horizontally. What actually was already out there and what is behind it? And you know the element of imagination that you just uh, you know we just discussed. I think that uh, is perhaps the way to get a wider community, wider, um, yeah, mass adoption of metaverse. What I'm trying to say is like, okay, the gamers, they understand the metaverse. They will be, they are already the adopters, right? What about the other people? How we should talk to them to show them that metaverse is not really something so weird?
0: Right. Well, maybe the first thing is there are 4 billion people online, maybe a bit more now and 2.7 billion play games. So actually at least people who are online more people play games than not. But I take your point about the fact that there's a very large audience of people who don't play games, who don't understand it or who don't care about it, right? And so how do you explain to that community about sort of the metaverse? And I think to me these are the the the, the one of the best approaches to me is to describe things around sort of, you know, emotions and feelings. And after all, what are those? I mean, what is love? It's not a physical thing, right? It's a it's a very virtual feeling. It's a very fa- thing that's again just for you, right? It's it's not it's not like I, I can't I can't touch love, right? I can't, you know. It's a, it's a. I mean, there may be aspects of it, but it's not what you, you sort of you, you think of in terms of an, sort of a an owned asset, right? So we are already living very meta anyway. And so I think, I think th- this is the part where we're explaining that I think comes a little bit with a, I think it's less to do with, do you understand games or do you understand this? I think it comes more about sort of having a deeper understanding of you know yourself. And also I think, and this is the part where I think the world needs a little bit of help, right? Is, uh, is, a, is a strong sense of empathy a strong sense of awareness of others, because then you can sort of, you know, if you're able to be very empathetic, I feel, then you're able to sort of feel for others and you're able to sort of experience and therefore understand, I think the meta concept better, because you're thinking also about how others think about stuff as opposed to only thinking about what you need or you want. And I think, uh, you know, because of, the way society has raised us because of schooling, because of traditional hierarchies, we are not thinking in very empathetic terms by design. Because, you know, if you go, if your children go to school, there is no empathy score, right? There is no, you know, we reward you for being, you know, very empathetic. We, we, don't, we don't do that. We reward you for your grade. Frankly, we reward you for being selfish. We reward you, right? We reward you for, for sort of looking out just for yourself and not for others. Yeah. And I think as a result, um, we, we, we kind of cut off something that's important. Uh, there is a very interesting study by uh, George Land and Bethany Jarvis. Uh, f- uh, what they did was they created a divergent thinking test. Uh, and the divergent thinking test was kind of going kind be of viewed like a creativity test that they created actually for NASA. And the idea of that test Uh, And there's a famous TED talk on this as well, the idea and and a book and everything. um, The idea of this was that, well, if you are a NASA explorer and there's a problem when you send someone to the moon, you know, it's a problem that nobody else has been able to solve, right? Because not many people (laughs) could go to the moon. So you need to have very creative engineers. So they designed a test like this to help NASA find really good creative engineers. They did a version of this test for children, And followed the children from the age of 5 to 15 and gave the same test to adults. And what was really interesting was that the children who were 5 years old were able, the majority, like 91%, were able to solve the test in a creative and divergent manner. By the time they were 8 years old, it dropped to something like 30%. Wow. And And when they were teenagers, it was like... 8% 8%. And for the adults, it was 2%. And so this actually became, you know, part of the body of work that Ken Robinson, you know, the late Ken Robinson passed on, where he was saying that schools kill creativity. Yeah. The point being that actually all humans are, in fact, creative, empathetic, and divergent thinkers. But because of our environment, because of the way we were raised, and because of school, because schools were designed for different purposes, we became more like robots. Yeah. And so it wasn't that we can learn creativity. We all had creativity. We all had empathetic skills. We, it was actually just removed from us over time out of necessity for the system. And then only a small percentage, maybe because they were different, maybe because they were whatever, um, uh, survived, I guess, the great creative purge, right? So I think this is, this is I, guess, I guess, the point here again about where the future can go. Which is that in you know in a world where you where you need those skills more, we would emphasize different things in in our evolution and therefore become more empathetic and therefore more capable of thinking in terms of meta ways because it is also kind of philosophical, right? Yeah. So you need to you need to give you need to have time and and energy to spend on that thinking. and if you don't think about this stuff ever, then it's harder for you to 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 sort of go into that plane because you never had the luxury of of doing that.
1: No, exactly. And, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey recently said, uh, I hope the Bitcoin brings more peace. Now we are not talking about Bitcoin here. We are talking about metaverses. You mentioned about, uh, you know, this study and what actually how society, how these stereotypes how what we have, it just forms and as make us more narrow-minded in a way, and uh, and then this is how you build what you, your beliefs are not what you truly believe, but what is a product of that kind of environment. And that's maybe this is something. I mean, I wanted to ask you a question about China, and uh, I know you're based in Hong Kong. But mm. uh, the other day was happened, I was I was in Clubhouse, and uh, there was a guy. There were some conversation about China, and this guy came up. is uh, a very well known um, guy Chinese, and he said, "Right, you don't know where China is. Why you, you know? Why you're talking about? You know, we are not employing cheap in labor. You don't know. You know, and these." Like not listening, not understanding, not knowing, bring people to stigmatize places, people, you know China is just an example to say that then you don't really know, and that's a very big limit for a future that is more peaceful, uh, and this is maybe something the metaverse uh, can change
0: no, I think. First of all, I fully agree that the metaverse has the potential to change that. In fact, I would say, my very first experience, which was kind of metaverse-like, gave me that illustration. I was just a child, actually. I grew up in Austria, in Vienna, right, and uh, and uh, a few things that were a little different is that in the seventies and eighties, you know, obviously uh, there weren't a lot of Chinese people in Austria. (laughs) In fact, I was probably the only one in like, you know, a 50 square mile radius, probably less, but still, anyway, there was very few of them, right? Um, And and that was one thing. Then I was also a child, but I wrote some software and I uploaded it to what was actually a pre-internet bulletin board system, CompuServe, and, and, uh, and put some software on there. And that software was a composition software. We don't have to talk about the specifics about it, but it led me to a career in computer science and into basically programming uh, because the people used the software and they said they liked it and they sent me some money, you know, and they didn't know that I was a child. They didn't care that I was, you know, know, Chinese. You know, it, it didn't matter. The only judgment was, Can I use your software? Is it good? And actually, if you have a question on the software, were you there to answer, right? And eventually it led me to a job at Atari uh, and I was still a kid. And so I think this is the thing, right? The Metaverse did create a new experience that was, you could say, without judgment because there was nothing to judge. I don't know you, right? I can't tell you. And back then it didn't really even matter, right? And, and I'm not saying that Austria was not you know, was not good to me. I mean, there were nice people and everything that was fine. But there was clearly a difference, you know, when I was walking in the streets as the only Chinese person back yeah. then, right? It was it was you. Know, so so it was natural for them. And then I speak perfect German, and people go, "This is so strange. They can't understand." At the time, because it was weird, right? Of course, today that's not so strange anymore. But back then, it was very strange. If you're online, that doesn't even exist. You don't think about that. You just judge by what you immediately see and do. So, you know, I think maybe that was one of the things that attracted me to the online world because I immediately felt I I could connect, you know, based on, you know, just pure ability or pure uh, sort of pure sense of, you know, what I could offer uh, without any particular baggage. So I think in that sense, I think the metaverse does have that ability to do that. Now you know the world has changed, right? And there's other things in which people pass judgment, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, the, the the I think the judgment will still come based on what you can can do. And in the metaverse, you know, if you're building in you know a, a new building in the sandbox, or if you're driving a race in you know in in F1 Delta Time, or if you're sort of growing and uh, breeding axes or competing with axes, you know nobody cares where you're from, right? Uh, and I think, I think that's, uh, that's, that's kind of great. So uh, the other thing is, is, I think it provides more understanding and a common base to begin a relationship, yeah. right? I mean, that's the other thing, you know, it's very hard to bridge cultures just like that, right? I, I, put, I put someone from two different countries together and I say, okay, you guys got to hang out. It's hard, right? But if you have a common experience, it's much easier. And the metaverse is that common experience. If I'm building land together on sandbox, I have a common experience, right? If I'm playing Axie Infinity, I have a common experience. And we see this in the real world. If I know how to play chess and you know how to play chess, we don't need to know who we are, we just play chess. We can make a friendship from that. If you play tennis, I play tennis, we play tennis. We enjoy, we begin a relationship, right? So you know, I think in that sense, nothing's really changed. It's just that we've gone from a physical play to a virtual play that scales much bigger because I can only play in the physical world with so many people at one time because that's my physical capacity limit. But in the virtual sense, I can scale that much larger, much broader, much more effectively.
1: Okay, I'm going to, before I I, I ask you about Animoca, I just, uh, just want to throw this question to you. So do you think that the physical world is, it got to a stage where it's really toxic, where I'm, I want to consider is, right, all the money printing and all the economy fucked up, you know, the, the government that you don't know, you know, how it really works, how people go in power or not. Um, the information that you don't have access, you just see what they want you to do. Uh, environment, again, you know, is uh, is clearly here that, um, you know, we have kind of destroyed our, um, you know, the beauty of nature, uh, are we at the stage where the real world is toxic?
0: Well, <laughs> I hope not. Um, you know, I, think, I think there are elements about the real world uh, as they have always been, that are obviously not desirable, right? And I think, I think you know, from a toxicity standpoint, it is sad, you could say. But on the other hand, I would say the, the underlying thing for us is the issue of sort of equity. Right. meaning that societies actually grew towards more equity. And then for many reasons, sort of particularly, I think right now, because of the fact that, you know, the wealthier get wealthy, the poor get poorer, right? For economic reasons. And, you know, let's take a look at governments. You know, although they are designed, or maybe they say they're designed to have more equity, but because of, you know, the money printing that's happened, you've now created an economic circumstance where there can be no downturn effectively. Because if there's a downturn, let's just print more money, right? And of course, when you print more money, what happens is that the actual assets, the equity you own has to rise, right? Because the money itself is not that valuable. But that means only the people who have equity can benefit And those who don't have equity basically lose out and then it becomes too expensive for them to buy. And so you've you've created a divide, right? Now, in history, usually these things are solved by revolution, right? If you think about it, right? Through a big change. That is not good news for anyone. And when you talk to some people you know, they worry about this future. And so, you know, <laughs> they, they bunker up, <laughs> they, they buy some land in the middle of Africa, you know, they worry about where the world will go. I, I know people like that because they're just like, oh my goodness, this is not going to end well, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic and I think the metaverse does offer an opportunity for two big reasons. The first one is the metaverse offers a completely new landscape of opportunity in which we actually have an equal and equitable chance of of sort of being involved. You know, when you think about the internet 30 years ago, that was a similar moment, right? where a lot of people who were early in the internet understood it created a new class of opportunity. And I think with blockchain and with the metaverse and with NFTs, I think we can create that new class because really, you know, there's a lot more people that need to go into this world and we can recreate, you know, I think what's exciting is we can almost quasi recreate sort of, you know, positive societies that, that that we'd like uh, with that we'd like to sort of see happen, right? The other thing is, and I think this is really really uh, important, is that the data ownership currently is locked by the big platforms, right? Whether it's Facebook, Amazon, you know, whichever you name it, they own the data. They have the network effect, and so like we see with medieval kingdoms of time, when you take the value and only a small number. Um, uh, sort of benefit. And most others don't. There's a lot of value that is lost. That's the first point, right? And then the second thing, of course, is that the the concentration of that wealth actually becomes very concentrated, which is what we see today, right? If you look at the market cap of the tech companies, they're huge, right? If you talk about the beneficiaries of them, you know, it's their employees and their shareholders and, you know, top management, you know, it's a very small number, right? And they, it's it's running away, right? If you look at the tech company valuations versus you know other things, it's it's yeah, you know, it's because they have data ownership and because they 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 control that. So blockchain and NFTs open that up completely um, because now you take ownership of those the, the, those data rights, and that means you have the ability to monetize it or give it to someone that you can monetize it better for you. Uh, when you have your digital property rights around this, which is what, you know, NFTs uh, represent. And in that context, uh, it would create more, you know, you would unlock digital equity because uh, platforms like Facebook or Apple basically become deep, sort of have to open up their platform or be challenged by the open platforms who offer the ability for people to sort of exchange value. It's a little bit like, you know, in the medieval kingdoms, when they had to open up and offer free trade and industrial capitalism, actually, did the kingdoms make less money? Um, You know, um, actually, they made more. Yes, they didn't have as much power, right? But, you know, the Queen of England, she's still pretty wealthy, (laughs) arguably wealthier than before from a net dollar standpoint, right? Uh, So we think this is the way this is going to go as well, right? By, By opening up these feudal sort of digital feudal kingdoms, we're going to unlock economic potential that is already there, but just not monetized for others to access. And so I think this is the opportunity to sort of construct another thing. And finally, you know, these digital kingdoms have one thing that physical sort of governments or kingdoms in the past um, had that they don't, which is a military, right? You know, the, Facebook doesn't have a military, right? So there's no scenario in which you can have oppression in the same way. So to me, I think this is just a natural opening up opportunity in which, you know, we create a kind of bloodless revolution of ownership and equity.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I really agree with you on that. So let's... Uh, um close it up with uh, some excitement about Animoca, your plans. You know, you just raised quite quite a big amount of money so you can perhaps do lots of uh, more things and uh, yeah, growth uh, plans. So tell me a little bit more on what you are working on.
0: Well, so first, one of our most recent announcements uh, Animoca brands had was just a few days ago. Uh, We announced our accelerator together with Brink. Uh, basically it's an accelerator for NFTs. You know, we want to bring more people into the metaverse. We want more people to know about it. You know, we're, we're funding up to half a million dollars per company that, is, that will successfully apply. Uh, so, so that's one that's exciting. And again, it's, that's on the investment side. And, and of course, we've, we've done many of them. The second thing is, of course, in the construction of our metaverses, we're super excited about where Sandbox is going, but also Gamy and Quid and Limpo and Tower you know all of these things all of these projects are really growing very fast bringing more u- sort of utility into the space you know for instance with nway today actually you know at the opening of the Tokyo Olympics you know we actually have the olympic rights yeah, uh, yeah. for non-fungible tokens and it's it's uh, we're offering it today we're we're doing we're doing some giveaways but we're also offering it for sale in fact in in an hour or two to to uh, to people who are interested in it and so that's exciting as well right uh and in fact sandbox as well i think just concluded their fifth summer sale which sold out in like like a second or two it was sort of so it's all it's all pretty exciting with rev you know we have our uh, a new racing game called rev racing and we have a staking event so you just have to deposit uh some token some uh, you know uh, tokens and you can earn and get specific car designs based on it um and that uh, you can then race and we're for our first inaugural race we're putting out 150,000 US dollars in prizes for the racers. So, you know, lots of opportunities to play to earn, lots of opportunities to gain NFTs. And I think I think it's, a, it's a great time, it's super exciting, and, and we're glad to be able to be at the forefront of, of making it all happen.
1: Fantastic, yeah, it was great to talk to you.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Okay. was a fantastic conversation with uh, Yat, and um i so much enjoyed it i hope you did as well if you have any comments or anything please get in touch with me and if you're not subscribed to our youtube channel then click the subscribe button and follow us on social media to make sure that you are up to date with our news and interviews and i will see you next time